we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Urgency of Change. This week's podcast continues Terence Stamp's reading of Krishnamurti's classic book, Commentaries on Living. Most of these recordings have never been heard before. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. For more information about our activities and programmes, such as our volunteer programme at Rockwood Park in the UK, we are online at kfoundation.org. You can also find our daily quotes and videos on Instagram and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. Terence Stamp is an Oscar-nominated actor known for his roles in The Limey, Superman, The Collector, Wall Street and many others. It was through working with Fellini that he met and became friends with Krishnamurti. Stamp includes his experiences with Krishnamurti in his recent memoir, The Ocean Fell Into the Drop. Commentaries on Living is one of Krishnamurti's most well-known and best-loved books. In it, he recalls many of the private conversations with those who came to see him. With encouragement from Aldous Huxley, these meetings were written down by Krishnamurti and published in 1956. Two further volumes were published in 1958 and 1960. Chapters included in this episode are titled Silence, Renunciation of Riches, Repetition and Sensation, The Radio and Music, Authority, Meditation and Anger. Silence. It was a powerful motor and well-tuned. It took the hills easily without a stutter and the pickup was excellent. The road climbed steeply out of the valley and ran between orchards of orange and tall, wide-spreading walnut trees. On both sides of the road, the orchards stretched for fully 40 miles up to the very foot of the mountains. Becoming straight, the road passed through one or two small towns and then continued into the open country, which was bright green with alfalfa. Again, winding through many hills, the road finally came out onto the desert. It was a smooth road. The hum of the motor was steady and the traffic was very light. There was an intense awareness of the country, of the occasional passing car, of the road signals, of the clear blue sky, of the body sitting in the car, but the mind was very still. It was not the quietness of exhaustion or of relaxation, but a stillness that was very alert. There was no point from which the mind was still. 
There was no observer of this tranquility. The experiencer was wholly absent. Though there was some desultory conversation, there was no ripple in this silence. One heard the roar of the wind as the car sped along, yet this stillness was inseparable from the noise of the wind, from the sounds of the car, and from the spoken word. The mind had no recollection of previous stillnesses, of those silences it had known. It did not say, this is tranquility. There was no verbalization, which is only the recognition and the affirmation of a somewhat similar experience. Because there is no verbalization, thought was absent. There was no recording, and therefore thought was not able to pick up the silence or to think about it, for the word stillness is not stillness. When the word is not, the mind cannot operate, and so the experiencer cannot store up as a means of further pleasure. There was no gathering process at work, nor was there the approximation or assimilation. The movement of the mind was totally absent. The car stopped at the house. The barking of the dog, the unpacking of the car and the general disturbance in no way affected this extraordinary silence. There was no disturbance and the stillness went on. The wind was among the pines. The shadows were long and a wild cat sneaked away among the bushes. In this silence there was movement and the movement was not a distraction. There was no fixed attention from which to be distracted. There is distraction when the main interest shifts, but in this silence there was absence of interest, and so there was no wandering away. Movement was not away from the silence, but was of it. It was the silence, not of death, of decay, but of life, in which there was a total absence of conflict. With most of us, The struggle of pain and pleasure, the urge of activity, gives us the sense of life. And if that urge were taken away, we should be lost and soon disintegrate. But this stillness and its movement was creation ever renewing itself. It was a movement that had no beginning and so had no ending, nor was it a continuity. Movement implies time, but here there was no time. Time is the more and the less, the near and the far, yesterday and tomorrow, but in this stillness all comparison ceased. It was not a silence that came to an end to begin again. There was no repetition. The many tricks of the cunning mind were wholly absent. If this silence were an illusion, the mind would have some relationship to it. It would either reject it or cling to it, reason it away, or with subtle satisfaction identify itself with it. But since it has no relationship to this silence, the mind cannot accept or deny it. The mind can operate only with its own projections, with the things which are of itself. But it has no relationship with the things that are not of its own origin. This silence is not of the mind, and so the mind cannot cultivate or become identified with it. The content of this silence is not to be measured by words. Renunciation of Riches 
We were sitting in the shade of a large tree, overlooking a green valley. The woodpeckers were busy, and there were ants in a long line scurrying back and forth between two trees. The wind was from the sea, bringing the smell of a distant fog. The mountains were blue and dreamy. Often they had seemed so close, but now they were far away. A small bird was drinking from the little pool made by a leaky pipe. Two grey squirrels with large bushy tails were chasing each other up and down a tree. They would climb to the top and come spinning down with mad speed almost to the ground and then go up again. He was once a very rich man and had renounced his riches. He had had a great many possessions and had enjoyed the burden of their responsibility for he was charitable and not too hard of heart. He gave without stint and forgot what he gave. He was good to his helpers and saw to their benefits and made money easily in a world that was bent on money-making. He was unlike those whose bank accounts and investments are bigger than themselves, who are lonely and afraid of people and their demands, who shut themselves off in the peculiar atmosphere of their wealth. He was not a threat to his family, nor did he yield easily, and he had many friends, but not because he was rich. He was saying that he had given up his possessions because it had struck him one day as he was reading something how vastly stupid were his money-making and his wealth. Now he had but few things and was trying to lead a simple life to find out what it was all about and whether there was something beyond the appetites of the physical centers. To be content with little is comparatively easy. To be free from the burden of many things is not difficult when one is on a journey looking for something else. The urgency of inward search clears away the confusion of many possessions, but being free from outer things does not mean a simple life. Outer simplicity and order do not necessarily mean inner tranquility and innocence. It is good to be simple outwardly for it does give a certain freedom. It is a gesture of integrity. But why is it that we invariably begin with the outer and not with the inner simplicity? Is it to convince ourselves and others of our intention? Why do we have to convince ourselves? Freedom from things needs intelligence, not gestures and convictions. And intelligence is not personal. If one is aware of all the implications of many possessions, that very awareness liberates. And then there is no need for dramatic assertions and gestures. It is when this intelligent awareness is not functioning that we resort to disciplines and detachments. The emphasis is not on much or little, but on intelligence. And the intelligent man, being content with little, is free from many possessions. But contentment is one thing, and simplicity is quite another. The desire for contentment or for simplicity is binding. Desire makes for complexity. Contentment comes with the awareness of what is and simplicity with the freedom from what is. It is well to be outwardly simple, but it is far more important to be inwardly simple and clear. Clarity does not come through a determined and purposeful mind. The mind cannot create it. 
The mind can adjust itself, can arrange and put its thoughts in order, but this is not clarity or simplicity. The action of will makes for confusion, because will, however sublimated, is still the instrument of desire. The will to be, to become, however worthwhile and noble, may give a directive, may clear away amidst confusion, but such a process leads to isolation, and clarity cannot come through isolation. The action of will may temporarily light up the immediate foreground, necessary for mere activity, but it can never clear up the background, for will itself is the outcome of this very background. The background breeds and nourishes the will, and will sharpen the background, heighten its potentialities, but it can never cleanse the background. Simplicity is not of the mind. A planned simplicity is only a cunning adjustment, a defence against pain and pleasure. It is a self-enclosing activity which breeds various forms of conflict and confusion. It is conflict that brings darkness within and without. Conflict and clarity cannot exist together. And it is freedom from conflict that gives simplicity, not the overcoming of conflict. What is conquered has to be conquered again and again, and so conflict is made endless. The understanding of conflict is the understanding of desire. Desire may abstract itself as the observer, the one who understands, but this sublimation of desire is only postponement and not understanding. The phenomenon of the observer and the observed is not a dual process, but a single one. And only in experiencing the fact of this unitary process is there freedom from desire, from conflict. The question of how to experience this fact should never arise. It must happen. And it happens only when there is alertness and passive awareness. You cannot know the actual experience of meeting a poisonous snake by imagining or speculating about it while sitting comfortably in your room. To meet the snake, you must venture out beyond the paved streets and artificial lights. Thought may record, but it cannot experience the freedom from conflict. For simplicity or clarity is not of the mind. Repetition and Sensation The roar and smell of the city came in through the open window. In the large square garden, people were sitting in the shade reading the news, the global gossip. Pigeons strutted about their feet looking for titbits, and children were playing on the green lawns, the sun made beautiful shadows. He was a reporter, quick and intelligent. He not only wanted an interview, but also wanted to discuss some of his own problems. When the interview for his newspaper was over, he talked of his career and what it was worth, not financially, but its significance in the world. He was a big man, clever, capable and confident. He was climbing rapidly in the newspaper world, and in it there was a future for him. Our minds are stuffed with so much knowledge that it is almost impossible to experience directly. 
The experience of pleasure and pain is direct, individual. But the understanding of the experience is after the pattern of others, of the religious and social authorities. We are the result of the thoughts and influences of others. We are conditioned by religious as well as political propaganda. The temple, the church and the mosque have a strange, shadowy influence in our lives and political ideologies give apparent substance to our thought. We are made and destroyed by propaganda. Organised religions are first-rate propagandists, every means being used to persuade and then to hold. We are a mass of confused responses, and our centre is as uncertain as the promised future. Mere words have an extraordinary significance for us. They have a neurological effect whose sensations are more important than what is beyond the symbol. The symbol, the image, the flag, the sound are all important. Substitution and not reality is our strength. We read about the experiences of others. We watch others play. We follow the example of others. We quote others. We are empty of ourselves and we will try to fill this emptiness with words, sensations, hopes and imagination. But the emptiness continues. Repetition with its sensations, however pleasant and noble, is not the state of experiencing. The constant repetition of a ritual, of a word, of a prayer, is a gratifying sensation to which a noble term is given. But experiencing is not sensation, and sensory response soon yields place to actuality. The actual, the what is, cannot be understood through mere sensation. The senses play a limited part, but understanding or experiencing lies beyond and above the senses. Sensation becomes important only when experiencing ceases. Then words are significant and symbols dominate. Then the gramophone becomes enchanting. Experiencing is not a continuity. For what has continuity is sensation at whatever level. The repetition of sensation gives the appearance of a fresh experience, but sensations can never be new. The search of the new does not lie in repetitive sensations. The new comes into being only when there is experiencing, and experiencing is possible only when the urge and the pursuit of sensation have ceased. The desire for the repetition of an experience is the binding quality of sensation, and the enrichment of memory is the expansion of sensation. The desire for the repetition of an experience, whether your own or that of another, leads to insensitivity, to death. Repetition of a truth is a lie. Truth cannot be repeated. It cannot be propagated or used. That which can be used and repeated has no life in itself. It is mechanical, static. A dead thing can be used, but not truth. You may kill and deny truth first and then use it, but it is no longer truth. The propagandists are not concerned with experiencing. 
they are concerned with the organization of sensation, religious or political, social or private. The propagandist, religious or secular, cannot be a speaker of truth. Experiencing can come only with the absence of the desire for sensation. The naming, the terming must cease. There is no thought process without the verbalization, and to be caught in verbalization is to be a prisoner to the illusions of desire. The radio and music. It is obvious that radio music is a marvelous escape. Next door, they kept the thing going all day long and far into the night. The father went off to his office fairly early. The mother and daughter worked in the house or in the garden, and when they worked in the garden, the radio blared louder. Apparently the son also enjoyed the music and the commercials, for when he was at home, the radio went on just the same. By means of the radio, one can listen endlessly to every kind of music, from the classical to the very latest. One can hear mystery plays, news, and all the things that are constantly being broadcast. There need be no conversation, no exchange of thought, for the radio does almost everything for you. The radio, they say, helps students to study, and there's more milk if at milking time the cows have music. The odd part about all this is that the radio seems to alter so little the course of life. It may make some things a little more convenient. We may have global news more quickly and hear murders described most vividly, but the information is not going to make us intelligent. The thin layer of information about the horrors of atomic bombing, about international alliances, research into chlorophyll and so on, does not seem to make any fundamental difference in our lives. We are as warm-minded as ever. We hate some other group of people. We despise this political leader and support that. We are duped by organized religions. We are nationalistic and our miseries continue. And we are intent on escapes. The more respectable and organized, the better. To escape collectively is the highest form of security. In facing what is, we can do something about it. But to take flight from what is inevitably makes us stupid and dull, slaves to sensation and confusion. Does not music offer us, in a very subtle way, a happy release from what is? Good music takes us away from ourselves, from our daily sorrows, pettiness and anxieties. It makes us forget, or it gives us strength to face life. It inspires, invigorates and pacifies us. It becomes a necessity in either case, whether as a means of forgetting ourselves or as a source of inspiration. Dependence on beauty and avoidance of the ugly is an escape which becomes a torturing issue when our escape is cut off. When beauty becomes necessary to our well-being, then experiencing ceases and sensation begins. The moment of experiencing is totally different from the pursuit of sensation. In experiencing, there is no awareness of the experiencer and his sensations. When experiencing comes to an end, then begins the sensations of the experiencer. And it is these sensations that the experiencer demands and pursues. 
When sensations become a necessity, then music, the river, the painting are only a means to further sensation. Sensations become all dominant and not experiencing. The longing to repeat an experience is the demand for sensation. And while sensations can be repeated, experiencing cannot. It is the desire for sensation that makes us cling to music, possess beauty. Dependence on outward line and form only indicates the emptiness of our own being, which we fill with music, with art, with deliberate silence. It is because this unvarying emptiness is filled or covered over with sensations that there is the everlasting fear of what is, of what we are. Sensations have a beginning and an end. They can be repeated and expanded, but experiencing is not within the limits of time. What is essential is experiencing, which is denied in the pursuit of sensation. Sensations are limited, personal. They cause conflict and misery. But experiencing, which is wholly different from the repetition of an experience, is without continuity. Only in experiencing is there renewal, transformation. Authority The shadows were dancing on the green lawn, and though the sun was hot, the sky was very blue and soft. From across the fence, a cow was looking at the green lawn and at the people. The gathering of people was strange to her, but the green grass was familiar, though the rains were long gone, and the earth was burnt brown. A lizard was picking off flies and other insects on the trunk of an oak. The distant mountains were hazy and inviting. She said, under the trees after the talk, that she had come to listen in case the teacher of teachers spoke. She had been very earnest, but now that earnestness had become obstinacy. This obstinacy was covered over by smiles and by reasonable tolerance, a tolerance that had been very carefully thought out and cultivated. It was a thing of the mind, and so could be inflamed into violent, angry intolerance. She was big and soft-spoken, but there lurked condemnation, nourished by her convictions and beliefs. She was suppressed and hard, but had given herself over to brotherhood and to its good cause. She added, after a pause, that she would know when the teacher spoke, for she and her group had some mysterious way of knowing it, which was not given to others. The pleasure of exclusive knowledge was so obvious in the way she said it, in the gesture and the tilt of the head. Exclusive private knowledge offers deeply satisfying pleasure, to know something that others do not know is a constant source of satisfaction. It gives one the feeling of being in touch with deeper things which afford prestige and authority. You are directly in contact. You have something which others have not, and so you are important not only to yourself, but to others. The others look up to you, a little apprehensively, because they want to share what you have. But you give always knowing more. You are the leader, the authority, and this position comes easily, for people want to be told, to be led, 
the more we are aware that we are lost and confused, the more eager we are to be guided and told. So authority is built up in the name of the state, in the name of religion, in the name of a master or a party leader. The worship of authority, whether in big or little things, is evil, the more so in religious matters. There is no intermediary between you and reality. And if there is one, he is a perverter, a mischief maker. It does not matter who he is, whether the highest saviour or your latest guru or teacher. The one who knows does not know. He can know only his own prejudices, his self-projected beliefs and sensory demands. He cannot know truth, the immeasurable. Position and authority can be built up, cunningly cultivated, but not humility. Virtue gives freedom, but cultivated humility is not virtue. It is mere sensation and therefore harmful and destructive. It is a bondage to be broken again and again. It is important to find out not who is the master, the saint, the leader, but why you follow. You only follow to become something, to gain, to be clear. Clarity cannot be given by another. Confusion is in us. We have brought it about and we have to clear it away. We may achieve a gratifying position, an inward security, a place in the hierarchy of organised belief, but all this is self-enclosing activity leading to conflict and misery. You may feel momentarily happy in your achievement. You may persuade yourself that your position is inevitable, that this is your lot, but as long as you want to become something, at whatever level, there is bound to be misery and confusion. Being as nothing is not negation. The positive or negative action of will which is desire sharpened and heightened, always leads to strife and conflict. It is not the means of understanding. The setting up of authority and the following of it is the denial of understanding. When there is understanding, there is freedom, which cannot be bought or given by another. What is bought can be lost, and what is given can be taken away. And so authority and its fear are bred. Fear is not to be put away by appeasements and candles. It ends with the cessation of the desire to become. Meditation He had practiced for a number of years what he called meditation. He had followed certain disciplines after reading many books on the subject and had been to a monastery of some kind where they meditated several hours a day. He was not sentimental about it, nor was he blurred by the tears of self-sacrifice. He said that, though after these many years his mind was under control, it still sometimes got out of control, that there was no joy in his meditation, and that the self-imposed disciplines were making him rather hard and arid. Somehow, he was very dissatisfied with the whole thing. He had belonged to several so-called religious societies, but now he had finished with them all and was seeking independently the God they all promised. He was getting on in years and was beginning to feel rather weary. 
Right meditation is essential for the purgation of the mind. For without the emptying of the mind, there can be no renewal. Mere continuity is decay. The mind withers away by constant repetition, by the friction of wrong usage, by sensations which make it dull and weary. The control of the mind is not important. What is important is to find out the interests of the mind. The mind is a bundle of conflicting interests and merely to strengthen one interest against another is what we call concentration, the process of discipline. Discipline is the cultivation of resistance and where there is resistance, there is no understanding. A well-disciplined mind is not a free mind, and it is only in freedom that any discovery can be made. There must be spontaneity to uncover the movements of the self at whatever level it may be placed. Though there may be unpleasant discoveries, the movements of the self must be exposed and understood. But disciplines destroy the spontaneity in which discoveries are made. Disciplines, however exacting, fix the mind in a pattern. The mind will adjust itself to that for which it has been trained. But that to which it adjusts itself is not the real. Disciplines are mere impositions, and so can never be the means of denudation. Through self-discipline, the mind can strengthen itself in its purpose, but this purpose is self-projected, and so it is not the real. The mind creates reality in its own image, and disciplines merely give vitality to that image. Only in discovery can there be joy, the discovery from moment to moment of the ways of the self. The self, at whatever level it is placed, is still of the mind. Whatever the mind can think about is of the mind. The mind cannot think about something which is not of itself. It cannot think of the unknown. The self at any level is the known. And though there may be layers of the self of which the superficial mind is not aware, they are still within the field of the known. The movements of the self are revealed in the action of relationship. And when relationship is not confined within a pattern, it gives an opportunity for self-revelation. Relationship is the action of the self. And to understand this action, there must be awareness without choice. For to choose is to emphasize one interest against another. This awareness is the experiencing of the action of the self. And in this experiencing, there is neither the experiencer nor the experienced. Thus the mind is emptied of its accumulations. There is no longer the me, the gatherer. The accumulations, the stored-up memories, are the me. The me is not an entity apart from the accumulations. The me separates itself from its characteristics as the observer, the watcher, the controller, in order to safeguard itself, to give itself continuity amidst impermanency. The experiencing of the integral, unitary process frees the mind from its dualism. Thus, the total process of the mind, the open as well as the hidden, is experienced and understood, not piece by piece, activity by activity, but in its entirety.
then dreams and everyday activities are ever an emptying process. The mind must be utterly empty to receive. But the craving to be empty in order to receive is a deep-seated impediment. And this also must be understood completely, not at any particular level. The craving to experience must wholly cease, which happens only when the experiencer is not nourishing himself on experiences and their memories. The purgation of the mind must take place not only on its upper levels, but also in its hidden depths. And this can happen only when the naming or terming process comes to an end. Naming only strengthens and gives continuity to the experiencer, to the desire for permanency, to the characteristic of particularizing memory. There must be silent awareness of naming, and so the understanding of it. We name not only to communicate, but also to give continuity and substance to an experience, to revive it and to repeat its sensations. This naming process must cease, not only on the superficial levels of the mind, but throughout its entire structure. This is an arduous task, not to be easily understood or lightly experienced, for our whole consciousness is a process of naming or terming experience, and then storing or recording it. It is this process that gives nourishment and strength to the illusory entity, the experiencer, as distinct and separate from the experience. Without thoughts, there is no thinker. Thoughts create the thinker, who isolates himself to give himself permanency, for thoughts are always impermanent. There is freedom when the entire being the superficial as well as the hidden, is purged of the past. Will is desire. And if there is any action of the will, any effort to be free, to denude oneself, then there can never be freedom, the total purgation of the whole being. When all the many layers of consciousness are quiet, utterly still, only then is there the immeasurable, the bliss that is not of time, the renewal of creation. Anger. Even at that altitude, the heat was penetrating. The window panes felt warm to the touch. The steady hum of the plane's motors was soothing, and many of the passengers were dozing. The earth was far below us, shimmering in the heat, an unending brown with an occasional patch of green. Presently we landed, and the heat became all but unbearable. It was literally painful, and even in the shade of a building, the top of one's head felt as if it would burst. The summer was well along, and the country was almost a desert. We took off again, and the plane climbed, seeking the cool winds. Two new passengers sat in the opposite seats, and they were talking loudly. It was impossible not to overhear them. They began quietly enough, but soon anger crept into their voices, the anger of familiarity and resentment. In their violence, they seemed to have forgotten the rest of the passengers. They were so upset with each other that they alone existed and none else. 
Anger has that peculiar quality of isolation, like sorrow. It cuts one off. And for the time being, at least, all relationship comes to an end. Anger has the temporary strength and vitality of the isolated. There is a strange despair in anger. For isolation is despair. The anger of disappointment, of jealousy, of the urge to wound, gives a violent release whose pleasure is self-justification. We condemn others, and that very condemnation is a justification of ourselves. Without some kind of attitude, whether of self-righteousness or self-abasement, what are we? We use every means to bolster ourselves up, and anger, like hate, is one of the easiest ways. Simple anger, a sudden flare-up which is quickly forgotten, is one thing, but the anger that is deliberately built up, that has been brewed and that seeks to hurt and destroy, is quite another matter. Simple anger may have some physiological cause which can be seen and remedied, but the anger that is the outcome of a psychological cause is much more subtle and difficult to deal with. Most of us do not mind being angry. We find an excuse for it. Why should we not be angry when there is ill treatment of another or of ourselves? So we become righteously angry. We never just say we are angry and stop there. We go into elaborate explanations of its cause. We never just say that we are jealous or bitter, but justify or explain it. We ask how there can be love without jealousy. Or say that someone else's actions have made us bitter and so on. It is the explanation, the verbalization, whether silent or spoken, that sustains anger that gives it scope and depth. The explanation, silent or spoken, acts as a shield against the discovery of ourselves as we are. We want to be praised or flattered. We expect something. And when these things do not take place, we are disappointed. We become bitter or jealous. Then, violently or softly, we blame someone else. We say the other is responsible for our bitterness. You are of great significance because I depend upon you for my happiness, for my position or prestige. Through you, I fulfill. So you are important to me. I must guard you. I must possess you. Through you, I escape from myself. And when I am thrown back upon myself, being fearful of my own state, I become angry. Anger takes many forms. Disappointment, resentment, bitterness, jealousy, and so on. The storing up of anger which is resentment, requires the antidote of forgiveness. But the storing up of anger is far more significant than forgiveness. Forgiveness is unnecessary when there is no accumulation of anger. Forgiveness is essential if there is resentment. But to be free from flattery and from the sense of injury without the hardness of indifference makes for mercy, charity, Anger cannot be got rid of by the action of will, for will is part of violence. Will is the outcome of desire, the craving to be, and desire in its very nature is aggressive, dominant. 
To suppress anger by the exertion of will is to transfer anger to a different level, giving it a different name. But it is still part of violence. To be free from violence, which is not the cultivation of non-violence, there must be the understanding of desire. There is no spiritual substitute for desire. It cannot be suppressed or sublimated. There must be a silent and choiceless awareness of desire. And this passive awareness is the direct experiencing of desire without an experiencer giving it a name.